Good evening, everybody, fellow alcoholics. My name is Richard, and I am an alcoholic. Uh, what an honor to get my first Oscar for being a drunk. Here we go. I'm a little nervous to be here because it's such a big crowd. And uh, first of all, I'm, uh, I would like to thank Bill Hatchman personally for inviting me up here to, uh, to be your speaker tonight. It's an honor. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Debbie, everyone that is here. Uh, this program saved my life. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. My sobriety date is 9-21-01. Those of you that know me know I've been around here for a long time. I've played a lot of games in AA. I'm not, a, I'm not proud to say that, that that's part of what my story was. I attended my first meeting in uh, December the 15th of 1981. It was my first AA meeting, introduction to uh, this program. Uh, it was the old Alano Club on Santa Fe, which was right down the road, right next to Mata's Restaurant at the time. And uh, there's a gentleman sitting here in the second table with his back turned towards me. Uh, he's kind of an old guy. He's been around here for about since 1979. When I went to my first meeting, Mr. Oley there was... The, was speaking at that meeting. He was at the podium. He was celebrating a little over two years sobriety at that time. At this date, he has 33 years coming up of continuous sobriety. So, please, hands over. There's a lot of people here that know me. Uh, there's a lot of people that have watched me come in and out of this program. Uh, I have various lengths of sobriety, and upon looking back at it now, at this stage in my sobriety, I wouldn't even call it that. It would be just dry time. Uh, the gentleman who took me to my first meeting, his name is Jerry D. A lot of you know him. He has 31 years of sobriety. He is a retired Visalia police officer, homicide investigator, one of the best that this town ever had. And it's an honor to have that man and a privilege to be my sponsor. And he stuck with me, took me to my first meeting, I had a, a first wife at the time, wife number one, uh, called down at Sequoia Feed, and uh, I, should take, I should take this back a little bit. I worked at a place called Sequoia Feed and Farm Supply, which was right down the street. It's right in the Visalia Chamber of Commerce building is there now. Years ago, it was elevated up on stilts. It was one of the last buildings left in this town that was built up high because we used to flood here. Every year, if we had a lot of rain, before they put the dam in in 1962. And uh, when I came to this town, uh, my father had just retired from the military. I moved here from San Antonio, Texas. I was born, believe I mean, I know everybody knows me as Redneck Richard, but I was born in England. Okay? It's like my mother said, I'm British by birth and Redneck by the grace of God. And, uh, you know, I, I was privileged to live all over the world. I traveled, I drove on the Autobahn at 15 years old in a 72 Volkswagen camper. I lived on the island of Crete in Greece in the Mediterranean, which is the best ocean. I mean, the Mediterranean Sea was the best sea I ever saw. Crystal clear, you could walk out 100 yards and watch the fish swimming around by your ankles. Try that at the, in the Pacific. And... Uh, I was very lucky. I've been to France. Uh, Bill, who has just made many trips, I remember when Bill went to France and I thought and brought back some memories when I went to the Eiffel Tower and I went up to the restaurant and uh, 
it, I was privileged to have my dad be in the military that I got to see the world at a young age. Moved here, graduated from Mount Whitney High School in 1976. So yes, I am old and uh, you know, I started doing my little experimentation with drinking when I was on the island of Crete. My first drink was October 25, 1969. I drank a German Fox beer downtown at Lyons Square that cost 30 cents. I'll never forget that for a 40-ounce drink. And I'll never forget what that feeling was. And we were riding mopeds. We were just kids. We were renting mopeds for a dollar a day. We could go 150 miles on a moped. And uh, But I never forget how... You know, I, I just felt so tough, you know, to be riding a motorcycle or moped, pedal one, and drinking a beer, you know. I mean, Oli would probably disagree with me on a, a motorcycle. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, I didn't have a lot of trouble with this. I really didn't. Uh, until I got here and uh, started experimenting, you know, when you're in high school and do the thing, the cruising on Looney Boulevard back when gas was 55 cents a gallon. A uh, long time ago. And uh, I had a big old Riviera, a big old boat that was slammed to the ground and uh, had strobe lights in it. And I had feathered back hair with Aquanet, you know, silk shirts, angel flights. Yeah. John Travolta days, you know, back in the day. But, uh, you know, we still played those kids' games where we go out on Friday night and drink. And I remember when uh, the police officers would pull us over. We never got arrested. They would just say, hey, you kids know better than that. You can't be drinking, pour it out. Or half of it would go in the back of their unit so they could go to choir practice after they got off their shift. And, uh, you know, and that, and that went on. And, uh, you know, I joined the military. My father was military. I thought it was my duty to be to join the United States Air Force and become a police officer. So I did that. And uh, if anybody knows that has ever been active in the military, you do a lot of drinking. I think Tim over there can vouch for that, being overseas stationed for a while and uh, in the United States Air Force. Thank you, Tim. And uh, had a good time. Had a good time for a long time and uh, got home and did the thing and, and, you know, got the marriage going and the children and the little white picket fence with a nice home, doing everything that I thought was what I was supposed to do as a man. And uh, when I first started at Sequoia Feed, I had started there with the intentions of working my way up to manager. Well, God had different plans for Richard. And uh, I worked there for a number of years. And how I was introduced to this program, a gentleman came in one day. And uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Dave Toomey, and he wouldn't mind me using his name, was my boss. He owned Sequoia Feed along with Ray Cox and uh, Catherine Toomey. And uh, he said, one of my friends has just relapsed. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And I have to go to Fresno to get him. And I'm thinking, oh, what the hell is relapse shit? You know, I don't know what that means. So anyway, he comes back and he says, I got him in the pine, whatever pine was. And uh, 90 days later, this gentleman comes walking in. He's 47 years old. And he walks up to me and Charles Rice, my boss, said, Richard, I'd like to introduce you to the new assistant manager of Sequoia Feet. I'm like, no assistant manager, that's my job. That's what I'm working to. And he looked, took one look at me and shook my hand. He said, no hard feelings, son. I you know, just want to introduce myself. My name is Jerry Domier, and uh, I just uh, just started here today to be my first day. And then he looked at me and he goes, have you been drinking? And I thought, well, damn, that's rude. 
you know. And I said, well, I might have had a little nip just to kind of get through the day. He goes, do you have a here on the premises? And it was right by the, underneath the counter by the coffee pot. And I said, yeah, I have a bottle of Jack Daniels. A bottle of Jack Daniels? I said, yeah, that's my drink of choice. And he said, would you please remove it? I'm an alcoholic. I just got out of prime recovery center and I can't be around booze. I'm not strong enough. And I thought, what an arrogant son of a bitch. I've been here for three years working this counter and he's telling me I can't drink as a place to work. Just because I wait on customers doesn't mean I can't drink. For some reason, though, I took the bottle, he turned, I put it in my back pocket of my Wranglers, and I started walking out the building. I walked down the ramp, across the scales, up into the warehouse, and I got over there and I took a big old chug. I'll never forget that. I just drank that thing and I went. And I started using the F-bombs. I mean, I was calling him everything but a white man. And the next thing I know, I hear this. Richard, we can hear you in the main office. The speaker is on. I had two secretaries, the owner, Jerry, and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm in trouble. I'm going to get fired. So I thought I better do the man, better man up, pull myself up by the bootstraps, go over there and apologize. So I went over there, did the right thing, apologized to him, went back to the warehouse, made sure that button was off. And I just started all over again as I took another drink. Well, needless to say, my drinking picked up. Uh, I drove a uh, gooseneck trailer. I picked up hay up in Selma, and I was always drinking, always. Never stopped. I drank every day. Any day that ended with a Y, I drank on. And, uh, I mean, I didn't get drunk drunk every day, but I just kept nipping at it. You know, just to say it's that what we call the mellow zone, where everything is just good. You know, nothing's wrong. You haven't done anything wrong. And uh, one day, I'll never forget, the phone rang, and I remember when Jerry picked it up, and he looked over at me like, yeah, I'm just... And I went, oh, I had a conversation, so I walked off. And then he went in and talked to my boss, and I'm thinking, oh, hell, did I piss off a customer, or did I do something wrong today? And uh, he just walked up to me and said, Richard, he said, what are you doing for lunch today at 12? Because we had to rotate. We were the only two staff in, in the office. And I said, I don't know, probably going home to my house. And he says, no, you're not. You're going with me to a meeting. I said, a meeting. What kind of meeting? Staff meeting? Promotion meeting? AA meeting. AA meeting. He said, right out our building, the back door to the Vase Alano Club is right next to Mata's restaurant. You and I are going to walk down that ramp 25 yards across that parking lot at 12 noon, and we're going to go to that meeting that only was at that day. And I remember opening up the back door and watching the smoke come belching out of that back room. I thought, that's like a Cheech and Chong movie, you know? And I went in there and I remember sitting, and I was told to sit down, shut up. There was nothing that I knew about drinking that these people had not done previously and knew more than I did. And I did. I sat back there and I talked to guys like Herman, Sailor Ken, Doris. They got sober in 53. You know, and a lot of the old timers, the people that had been there for many, many years. And I did. I sat there in that meeting. And I, I heard a little bit. And I remember Jerry looking at me and saying, Richard, I can't keep you sober. I cannot help you stay sober, Richard. All I can do is plant this seed. 
This is an AA meeting. This is people sharing their experience, strength, and hope that there is life besides drinking. And I thought, going through life without having a drink, nah, that ain't going to work. But I remember sitting there, and I remember going back, and all he said was, did you get anything at all out of that meeting? Did somebody say something that struck you, that hit you right in the gut, like, I might have done that. Yeah, I, I can relate. I said, yeah, a little bit. He goes, okay. He goes, if you ever want to go to another meeting, let me know. I'll go with you. Didn't push AA on me. Gave me the third edition to the big book. Bought it right there at the Alana Club that day and said, it's up to you. I still have that book. It still cracks when I open it. So it tells you I didn't read it very much. But the thing is, I still have it. And I have a fourth edition. And I have a, a copy of the first edition. And I played a lot of games. Like I said, I was in and out of this program. I would get a little bit of time, and then I'd go back out. They called me, I, God forgive me for even saying this, 30-day wonder Richard, relapse Richard, revolving door Richard, 13-step and Richard, a lot of that. Uh, you know, and, uh, and I did all that. And it's not, a, not because I'm bragging. But I was in and out. I played games. I didn't give this program that was freely given to us the opportunity that it deserved to help save my life. So I had to suffer a lot more pain for a lot more years, go through more divorces, lose more homes. But what's most important about us, I fathered children in different marriages. The thing that hurts me the most to this day is those children grew up with Daddy always being in a bar. I miss recitals. I miss cheerleading practices. I miss barbecues, family events, because I was not invited because Richard is going to make an ass out of himself and have a lampshade on his head within an hour. Now, that's sad to say that, that my own family, family reunions, We'd like to see you, Sharon. Bring Jennifer. Bring your mom and dad. Please tell Richard to stay home. That hurts to this day to talk about it. But it's part of who I am. When I take that first drink of alcohol, when the first sip touches my lips, I cannot be held accountable for what's going to happen after that first drink hits my lips. I'm gone. I'm running and I'm gunning. I drank at some of the finest drinking establishments in this town. The Pump House. Cersei's. The Green Olive. Lone Star Canteen. The Stag in Exeter. The Loading Chute in Woodlake. The Mountain House. Five-star drinking places. Nice. You know, it's where you want to take your wife and your children for a steak. And uh, I caused a lot of problems. Because when I drank, and I'm not proud of this either, I thought I was 6'6", four feet across the shoulders with a 52-inch chest and a 32-inch waist, and I had a mouth that I could insert my size 14 in, and I had room to spare. And I let my mouth write checks that my ass couldn't cash. And I got in a lot of trouble. And the story that people want to hear the most around here was one night in the pump house, Tim 
I hope you're proud of yourself for asking me to tell this story. I walked into the pump house. I had my best Wranglers on, my best Wrangler shirt, my resist-all hat, puffed up like a wild turkey, had my wallet thick with cash, sat down, and there was this cute little girl with a little dress on with a split up both sides of her hips. There was no parents. And I was sitting there, and she was paying attention to me and leaning on me and buying me a drink. I was buying her drinks. I don't know what drink I took that took me over the fence. And she said, I'm out of cigarettes. Can you get me a cigarette? I said, sure. I got a whole carton in my truck. And I tried to get off the bar stool, and I got my feet tangled up. And I made a little ass of myself, kind of fell over a little bit, got back up, dusted myself off. Started to walk outside, and I felt the sharpest blow to the side of my face. And then more and more, and then I was unconscious, obviously. I had eight broken ribs, broken jaw, broken nose, two back molars gone. Laying next to the dumpster, my pants pockets turned inside out, my money gone, wallet on my chest, all my children's pictures, bleeding profusely, and I was called in as a dead body at the bar. Officer Steve Abbott responded to the call, the late Steve Abbott, and uh, looked down and took a yellow sheet and was placing it over me when one of my eyes, I guess, voluntarily opened after it was bloodied. And he looked at me and he goes, Jesus Christ, that's Clydor's son. That's Richard. What happened? I said, I don't know. And people were laughing in the bar. And uh, he went in and found out the story. That little girl with the split dress up both sides and her partner, a bigger girl, with a crew cut, proceeded to beat the shit out of me over and over again and Steve was laughing so hard he did not take me to Queen Delta immediately he took me to my house called my father said you got to sit out on the front step and see your son when he pulls up well I got to tell you the story and he told my dad the story of how two girls had robbed me beat me up took all my money took my carton of cigarettes big tough redneck laying out in the gutter at the pump house and then Dad said, you know what, I don't even want them in the damn house. Go ahead and take them to Cuya Delta. So I spent a little few days at Cuya Delta Hospital recuperating. And then I went home when I got out and got my guns, as every good redneck does, loaded them up. And I went gunning for two certain young ladies. I hit every bar in Florida County, Fresno, Bakersfield, Modesto, Merced, all with the intention of double-tapping both these women while they sat in the bar beating up on another guy. That's what the insanity of this disease will do. That's what I'm alluding to. I kept drinking with the, with the thought in my mind that I'm going to kill two women who beat me up because I was probably being an ass, you know, but because of the pride and the ego I let it consume me, almost to the point of insanity and death. Until one day my sponsor told me, he said, listen, are you two playing games yet? What's, what's up with you? I've known you for all these years. 
You get a little bit of sobriety and you go. A little bit of sobriety. Finally, he said, have you ever opened that third edition I gave you and actually read the first 164 pages? Don't go back to the stories. Hit the first 164. Read the doctor's opinion. So I did. You know, and again, came back into AA, got another girlfriend in AA that I stayed with for four and a half years when I was in and out of sobriety. I don't know how she put up with me. She's a sweetheart. She's got 18 years in this program to, to this day. <laughs> but uh, I put her through hell. And then one day I went out, which was September the 11th, which was yesterday, was the beginning of Richard's last run. We had gotten here at work. I was working for Jack and Ingo Tree Service at the time. And uh, when September 11th, when they started hitting the Twin Towers, then they hit the Pentagon, and then one of them, which they still think to this day, could have possibly been headed for the White House. When a young man from this town, who we no longer have, was on board Flight 93. And he was one of the ones with the rally call, we've got to get these terrorists. They've already killed the pilots, and we've got to subdue them. And they drove that plane in the ground, killing everybody on board. When I heard all this, I'd just been paid off my boss. He wanted us to go home to our families. And so I said, well, I called my family, called my children, and I went down to the pump house. And I uh, took my truck. I had money in my pocket. I said, I'm not going to stop drinking. I'm just going to keep going. Got down there, 9 o'clock in the morning, started with a double bourbon, with a Jack Mack, and just kept going. All day, all night. All day, all night. It was only closed for four hours, from 2 to 6. It opened back up at 6. I had, when I was finally done, on the 18th, I had been in the same clothes since the 11th, with sawdust on me. I hadn't brushed my teeth, I hadn't washed my face, and shaved, still had a bandana on from the 11th. <clears throat> Crawled almost from the pump house home. Sick. I mean, just alcohol sick, like I'd never been in four in my life. I made it to the house. My parents basically chained me to a lounge chair in my backyard because they didn't want me to get up in the middle of the night going to look for a drink. They tried to feed me bananas for potassium, water, without being too crude or anything else. I've had no control over bodily functions, and we'll leave it at that. I had the shakes so bad. Seeing colors, seeing spiders, seeing, oh, God knows what. And uncontrollably shaking. Un I mean, just violent shaking. And so scared, the neighbor's looking over the fence going, you need to call an ambulance, ma'am. You don't look good. But my mother, who's British, by the way, she said, no, we're going to try to take care of them here. I don't want people to, you know, people in the neighborhood to know when the fire truck ambulance. Until it got so bad that my dad said, we've got to get them into that fine place that they'll take it. And this is how God works in mysterious ways. I still believe this to this day. They took me down there. They had to carry their grown son, two people in their 60s, 
because his legs were like honey. It didn't work. That jig weight. And I sat down there shaking and I remember Steve looking at my mom and dad and saying, you don't understand, folks. You have to call every day. We don't have a bed for him. And my mother said in her British voice, you don't understand. He's a drunk and he's not coming home and we don't want him here. And then telling me to my face, I regret the day I ever labored giving birth to you. The effect I had on my family over a period of drinking of 25 years, they told me, you aged us way faster than we should have aged by the grace of God. You've caused more monetary problems. You've caused problems where you can't stay married, jobs, everything else. Everything that I thought was important in life, I screwed up for alcohol. Jack Daniels was the best mistress I ever had, best lover, best friend, and it took away all the inhibitions and the pain in life that all you people out there were causing me to drink over. Somebody got into a fight while I was talking to Steve with a counselor, and he was told to vacate the premises and to not come back to Pine. And Steve looked at my mother and said, Ma'am, I think we just had an opening. All at the same time I was sitting there, I got in that room and I remember, and I'm going to tell you who was in there with me, he wouldn't mind this, Wesley G. was my roommate in detox, and boy can that guy snore. <laughs> but I remember going up there, and I remember two grown men, one a retired homicide investigator and one a retired master sergeant, going to XO meetings so they could come see their son and sponsee in mine. My dad had never done anything like that. So I thought, and what got me there, my breaking point was while I was on that drunk, I got into a gunfight in that bar before I hit Pine. Had a gentleman come in with a 45 drinking, was told to leave the premises because he had a drink on him and he couldn't bring drinks into the bar. And he pointed that 45 right at the bartender who hit the ground and dialed 911 on the phone. Everybody else dove under the pool table. They dove under tables. But Richard's standing there with a cigarette and a Jack Daniels for courage. With a bandana on with sawdust all over him. And he looked right at me and he said, are you the toughest guy in this place? He said, you must be the tough guy because you ain't going anywhere. I was so scared, I was petrified. And he pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. He pulled back on it, stove piped around. That's when I charged him. After I drank my drink, of course. <laughs> it's a $5 drink. You don't waste $5 drinks. And uh, he, 
He proceeded to whack me pretty good outside the back of the head. He split the back of my head open with that 45. We wrestled. The gun went down. Didn't know where it was. I was trying to get some help. Please help. Please find the gun. Find the gun so we can defuse this. And when he got up, he was on the ground. I was standing over him, and he had it right in his head. And I thought, I am dead this time. He's got the drop on me. He got up, and what was funny, he looked at me and he said, oh, the hell with this dump. Let's go down to Santa Fe Station where we can get a drink. He's telling us where he was going. By that time, SWAT arrived. They held me at gunpoint. They had MP5s, AR-15s, and everybody's going, he didn't do it. He, he helped stop it. And everybody's wanting to buy me drinks. And then I've got an officer that says, we need to get your head stitched up. And I'll never forget riding in the back of that unit without handcuffs. That was a whole new feeling. I actually got to lean on the door, put my feet over, and he took me in there, and I refused to get out. He said, what, well, what do you want, Richard? And I said, I want to go get back down to the pump house. He said, don't you think you've had enough to drink? I said, no, sir, I'm scared, and I need another drink. He said, okay, I can't stop you. I can stop you from driving, but I'll take you back down there. And he did. And I proceeded to keep drinking until I got... They went and got that guy. They had him at gunpoint. They came back to me. They showed me the gun. They this the gun. had blood stained all over the butt plate. And I said, yeah, that, that, that's the one he hit me with. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He's also a member of a local motorcycle gang. And uh, <laughs> you might need to watch your back. And I went into Pine, and they and uh, some of the guys from that group actually went by my house, and they were saying, Mr. Orr, you know, when Richard gets out of recovery, you know, we need to talk to him. He said, well, don't come by this house. That's between you and my son. And uh, we finally went to court over all that. What was funny was I said, you know what, this was a bar fight, Your Honor, between two guys. That's all I want to leave it at. They said, well, he's got two strikes on him. If you testify, we'll send him back for life. And I don't know why I did it. A lot of other people were intimidated. They had some of the guys and had round up the other nine that were in that bar and uh, kind of got them to change their testimony a little bit. And I remember when they came by my house when I was finally out, and uh, I had already told this guy, I'm not the judge, I'm not testifying. I just want to get some help. I'm a sick individual myself, and I'm a drunk. I don't need any more problems. And they came by my house, and they were asking me, Hey, Richard, did your dad need any firewood for his fireplace? Did your dad need any beer or anything? And I said, the last thing we need around here is beer or any kind of alcohol. And never had any problems. Six months later, when I was six months, over six months sober, I was at Costco Park a lot. This is what the program does for people who really want recovery, who want to be sober, who want to have a way of life they never dreamed possible. I was sitting in a parking lot, and there was a woman in a jag, and she was staring at me. I was with my father. He was inside getting some medications. And this woman's just dogging me. I mean, completely just eyeballing me. And I finally looked at her and said, what? And she gets out of the car, walks towards me. I jump out of the truck like there's going to be some kind of tough. I said, I should know about getting complications with women. She'll probably kick my ass, you know. And uh, she come up, and she goes, are you Richard Orr? That got into a little incident with guns down at the pump house on this date? And I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, well, there's somebody here that wants to give you a hug. I didn't even recognize this guy that I got in a fight with. And I had no idea. He had short hair. He was in a three-piece suit. And he came up. 
And he just put his arms around me and gave me a hug. And I looked at him and I said, Are you the same guy that... Yeah, me and you? Yeah. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you came up pretty good. And uh, his wife, he, he, he left, he went right back to the car. And his wife looked at me and she goes, Thank you. They're not sending my husband to prison for life. And he hadn't had a drink or a drug in his system since that incident. And I've got a husband back and a father for my kids. So it goes to show you, you know, sometimes an incident that could have been life-threatening. He could have gone, he could have killed me. If that guy would have gone off, that's like, that was my burning bush right there. When somebody points a weapon at you and pulls the trigger and it's a full clip and it's loaded, and you get another chance at life, you better take heed. Because, you know, I was getting like a cat running out of his lives. And, uh, and I said to myself, I'm going to do what my sponsor tells me to do and what's suggested, and I'm going to listen to people like Oli, Albert, and people that have been around here for years, and I'm going to do my best. I'm a flawed human being. I'm male. I'm flawed. But I have to surrender to win. I have to let go of that macho pride, that ego that kept me in the sickness, and say, you know what? I'm a six foot two inch, two hundred and thirty pound whip dog, which with my tail between my legs, and I want some help. Will somebody help me? And this manual sitting right over here, wherever he went, took off, didn't he? Right when I mentioned his name, he's not here. But I remember Manuel, when we were out working together, he always said, the only time, and we had a poster there at the Alana Club at this one time, the only, and it was a hand coming out of a cloud, and Mr. Flores drew that. He said, this is the only time I ever want to look down on a fellow alcoholic, is when I'm saying, you don't have to be there, ma'am, or sir, anymore. Sit, please, and expect a miracle, because you are the miracle in progress. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to do that. And my sponsor, one of the last things he said at the Plain of James, I sat in the Alana Club. I was in the first chair all the way up on the left. Bill knows, because Bill always sits in the first chair on the left. Pulled back by the wall with his tea, chips, whatever else he has, computers, apple, bananas. But uh, I was sitting there, antsy. Once again, I was getting ready to leave, and I remember what Jerry told me. No offense with the language. He said, Richard, you got two choices. Either shit or get off the pot. If you don't want what we have that we're trying to save your dumbass life, then get out. Get the hell out of here. Go drink. If that's what you want to do, because there's somebody dying to get in that chair that your fat ass is occupying. So I'm sorry. I don't mean to, to be rude, folks, but... I'm a jokester. Everybody who knows me knows I joke around. I'll play games. I'll act stupid in front of the Alano Club and walk across the street or run in front of traffic. But I don't joke about AA. That's one thing I do not joke about. Albert can attest to that. Even Oli has seen a change in me and said that. You know, it's like, don't try to press your recovery, Richard, on other people, but just tell them what it was like for you. And what was the change that made you take a look at yourself and go, you know what, there's got to be a better life than what I'm living. Because I'm taking two steps forward and four back. I'm flogging a dead horse and it ain't winning no races. And I finally had to listen to people that had been here and long time before me 
and watched me come in and out, and then finally said, oh, you got to stay? Maybe? You know, and it took people putting me down. It really did. People saying, you'll be out of here in 40 days, 50. You'll get a little chip and be gone. No, I'm not. Not today, anyway. I can only live in a 24-hour period that God's put in front of me. That's what I live for. I don't live for looking at year 12 down the road or year 20. I hope I get there. I, I hope I stay sober. But I know I'm sober today. There's not a mind-altering chemical in this system. And that's what I'm proud of. And when I hear the stories in AA, when people come up and say, Wow, Richard, I got 67 days today, or I got 80 days. I got a job at McDonald's. Other people would laugh at them out there, you know, and belittle them. Oh, man, you flipping burgers. So what? 825. For a person that hadn't had a job in two or three years, and they got a 40-hour job, and they got a little 74 pino that leaks oil all over the place, but it gets them to that $8.25 an hour job, and they got that little apartment, maybe not on the best part of town, and they don't like their kids being subjected to maybe what's going on in that neighborhood, but it's all they can afford right now because they're working and going to meetings and staying sober to have those children in their lives, to have that little apartment and maybe go buy a couch for $5 at a yard sale and glad to get it because maybe one of those children needs to sleep on that couch because it's only a studio and she has four children. My hats are my hats off to people like that. If you're doing the best you can on a daily basis to stay sober and to be of service to others when you can, whether it's a handshake, whether it's a hug. We had a meeting this morning where it was emotional to say the least. There was some tears. There was gut wrenching honesty. Help me, what do I do? Those are the people I like to see. Those are the people I want to reach out to. And those are the people that are gut-wrenching on us saying, I need help. Please, somebody give me some advice. You're the true winners. Everybody sitting in this room tonight, you're all God's children being shown a better way of life if you want it. It's strictly up to you. As Albert and I do all the time. This this and this. That has nothing to do with gangs, folks. Albert, you want to explain what that means? Jesus loves you. I love you. Gentlemen like Manuel, who works for me. Albert sitting in front of here. Bobby, who bounces. Robert, Bill. We're all people that usually would not miss. We might have drank and somebody might be a high dollar, Finnish Press, Depot, on Pump House. You know? Does that make me worse than the person who has $500,000 in the bank and can drink like that? An alcoholic is an alcoholic is an alcoholic. We know no creed, no color, no religion, but together in here, we bond. And who understands an alcoholic when they're hurting? A fellow alcoholic. Those people out there, they don't give a shit about you or me. I'm sorry. They don't understand us. We're weak. We're in a cult. 
they ate a cult. We're all religious fanatics. No, we're spiritually based. And we're here to help each other. The most successful recovery program that's ever been is Alcoholics Anonymous. Over 3.5 million people have been affected. That's just people who drink. That's not counting moms, dads, sisters, brothers, relatives, and everything else. What is the last thing when you leave a recovery home, what they tell you to do? I don't care if it's when they put hot rocks on your back with needles, giving you cortisone shots and telling you, oh, isn't this Malibu lovely? They go, get a big book, go to meetings, and get a sponsor. Isn't that funny how everything, $60,000 we rolled back, right back to a big book? For $10. And 60 cents. Eleven fifty-five at the club. That one book, which is Our Holy Grail, Our Holy Grail, to recovery. I know it was written in 1939, folks. I know June 10th, 1935 is when we got started. Oh, old, old crap. Oh, old crap. The message in that big book is still the same in 39 as it is today. We're going to help you stay sober if you want it. Only you and you alone can tell yourself if you're an alcoholic. When you get up in the morning and look in that mirror, are you happy with who you see and who you are today? If not, folks, let's change. Change is good. Surrender to win. Always remember that. For everybody in here, you're all miracles because you didn't drink today. And I got long-winded again, and I God bless you, and thank you for letting me be here tonight.